the ILS podcast. Now here's your host, Richard Munoz. Hello and welcome to the second season of the ILS podcast, a podcast brought to you by the International Law Section of the State Bar of Texas, where our mission is to provide you a short and topical podcast that makes international law relevant, no matter what your area of practice or business. On March 20th, 2020, the Department of Health and Human Services issued an emergency regulation which permits the director of the CDC to prohibit the introduction into the United States individuals when the director believes there is a serious danger of the introduction of a communicable disease. This is known as Title 42. Title 42 has allowed the federal government to turn away migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border, including those who are seeking asylum. And this has led to many migrants being subjected to kidnappings, attacks, violence, and crowded conditions which potentially could cause a public health emergency. To help us understand this situation better, we've asked two guests to return, Kate Lincoln Goldfinch and Lindsay Goldforth Gray. Kate is the managing partner of Lincoln Goldfinch Law. She has appeared on news outlets such as BBC, MSNBC, The New York Times, and National Public Radio as an immigration expert and regularly speaks on immigration to the American Immigration Lawyers Association, the State Bar of Texas, and the Austin Bar Association, as well as community groups such as churches and schools. Lindsay practices immigration law in Austin and is the chief executive officer for Vecina. Vecina is an organization that seeks to empower immigrant justice advocates by mentoring attorneys, educating communities, and mobilizing volunteers. She is also the co-host of Vecina's podcast, Inadmissible. Lindsay and Kate, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Yes, it's good to be here. Now, Lindsay, let's level set. Uh, In a previous podcast, we touched briefly on the asylum process. Could you just briefly explain how a migrant presents themselves at the U.S. border and what happened pre-Title 42? Sure. So the way that the asylum system has worked historically at the southern border, so pre-Title 42, but then also pre-other border policy that we had prior to Title 42, sort of going back a bit, is that asylum seekers are allowed under our law to come to a port of entry, meaning a, a place of entry at the southern border or the northern border, and express fear of return to their home countries. And in order to qualify for asylum, they have to fear return because they fear persecution on account of one or more of five what we call protected grounds. So persecution based on race, for example, or persecution based on religion. And when someone presented themselves at the border, usually what would happen is that they would be detained and then they would be interviewed by an asylum officer about that fear. And that interview was called a credible fear interview. And so they would have this interview that usually took anywhere from probably 90 minutes to three hours. And they talked all about uh, their fear of return. And then a decision was made as to whether that person passed or failed their credible fear interview. And those that passed were given a chance to present their case before an immigration judge in immigration court and oftentimes released to be able to, you know, work and become productive members of society while they were awaiting their uh, day in court. Or if they failed their credible fear interview, they could either be removed back to their home country or they could appeal in front of a judge first in order to have review of that decision. When Title 42 got instituted, what, what changed about this process? 
Title 42 essentially in many ways took away that right for thousands and thousands of people. And so, as you mentioned, Title 42 was a policy put in place by the Center for Disease Control. And it's based on a law that's over a hundred years old that the intention was to protect the public from quote unquote, the introduction of a communicable disease. And we, you know, prior to the institution of Title 42 for these purposes, we had not seen it previously used to regulate human beings. It was previously done to regulate the transportation industry. And so this is the first time that we see it introduced to regulate the movement of humans across borders. And what Title 42 essentially does is it says, you are not allowed to present yourself at the border. You are not allowed to have a credible fear interview. You are not allowed to request asylum. You are simply going to be picked up and what's called expelled if you're already on U.S. soil or turned back if you're at a port of entry, either into Mexico or to your home country. And so for a long while, Title 42 was only being applied to Mexicans, Guatemalans, Hondurans, and El Salvadorans. And then we saw uh, a rise in expulsions by plane to Haiti. And we saw that at the southern border a number of months ago, and there was quite an uprising about that. But essentially what Title 42 does is it takes away that right to seek protection in the United States under our laws. So just to clarify, it's not an immigration regulation. It's a health and human services regulation. That's correct. And it's it's really interesting to note that as we have sort of long ago now removed mask mandates, we've removed many of our COVID-19 related policies, but Title 42 remains in effect, at least for this moment. Kate, let me ask you, what happens to a migrant that is now subject to Title 42 and what are some of the issues that they will face when they're either, um, as Lindsay said, either expelled uh, or turned away? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to consider what used to happen uh, for context, because there used to be a screening. Anyone who wanted to apply for asylum would at least be screened. Most would have a credible fear interview. And that would take, you know, anywhere from a few days to a few weeks. But but migrants would get the sense, at least, that someone had reviewed their case and made a determination about their case. There would be some sort of assessment and processing that occurred. Under Title 42, you just can't apply for asylum. So there isn't even a screening mechanism. So what happens is pretty quick. Migrants will either get, you know, turned away or picked up and immediately sent back. And I think the thing to keep in mind is that most of these migrants who are in the situation where they are, you know, homeless and they're at the southern border and they're not they're not Mexicans. So they are refugees in Mexico attempting to come into the United States. Many of them are with their children. Many of them are very vulnerable to cartel violence. They're in really desperate situations. Um, Lindsay and I have visited the camps and it's something that you really feel when you go and see how these people are living and what they're experiencing. Now with Title 42, what happens? So what happens is in Title 42, they just get sent back. There's not really any sort of screening that occurs. And so what I always try to remind people is that when you have someone who's fleeing violence in their home country, they're in a dangerous situation and they're desperate and you don't give them an opportunity to apply and they just get sent back to Mexico. Well, what do you think they're going to do tomorrow? They're going to make another attempt. And this is not because they're bad people. 
This is because they are desperate people who are doing everything they can to protect themselves and their families. And so the result of that is that we see increased apprehensions at the border that make the numbers look inflated, that get people all riled up and scared about what's happening at the border. When in fact, if we could get back to a screening system, it would give migrants the sense, at least, that they are being considered for asylum. And if they go through a screening process and at the end of the day, they're not eligible for asylum, well, then probably they're going to make alternative arrangements at the end of that process. But if all they've been, all that's happened is they got picked up and sent back to Mexico, they're going to keep trying until they get an answer. So let me understand this correctly, though. Is that essentially stop the asylum process altogether at this point? That is correct. There's no way to apply for asylum if someone is subject to Title 42. There are little mini exemptions here and there. There's different policies that apply to people depending on the port of entry here and there. But I think it's fair to say that under Title 42, there has been just a blanket block on asylum. So people, even if they're eligible, have no way to apply for asylum. And many of them are eligible under our laws or would be. Wow. Sorry, I just have to to process that for a second. I did not realize the extent of the of the policy. And and ostensibly given the timing it was for it was covid based, I assume, uh, or at least that was the the idea that it was based on covid. Well, now that we've opened up as Lindsay uh, had talked a little bit earlier, is there any indication that the that the current administration is going to change its policy? Yeah, there's more than an indication. There's been an announcement uh, that the program would end on May 11th. And then as things go in this era, um, a president makes an announcement and the states sue them. There was a hearing scheduled at the Supreme Court about the cancellation of Title 42, and the Supreme Court canceled the oral arguments because the case was essentially mooted out when the Biden administration announced the end of the public health emergency overall for COVID. So the end of the overall emergency meant there's no way that they could justify or continue an emergency on Title 42 just as it applies to migrants. So the Supreme Court said, we're not going to hear oral argument. This case is mooted out. So once Title 42 goes away, what is going to happen? What that will look like very much remains to be seen. Um, There are indications from the Biden administration that they're going to return to massive detention of migrants along the border, um, including families. And that's something that we've seen over the last 15 years is family detention centers pop up. It's tricky business because we've had almost for three years now, the border completely closed to asylum seekers, while legitimate eligible asylum seekers, you know, accumulate people who want to apply for this benefit for which they would qualify. And so we need to get back to this ability to be able to accurately screen people for this benefit. And there are questions about how you do that in a humane and dignified way. What are some of the arguments for and against detention? There's a whole spectrum of ideas on that. You know, a lot of people believe that this the data and the studies support that non-detention case support options are way better for asylum seekers. Things like providing them with a case manager who tells them exactly how to check in with ICE and appear for their court hearings and change their address in the system. 
Um, studies have shown that, you know, 90 plus percent of migrants comply when they're given that kind of support. And that's, that doesn't require detention and it's pennies, you know, as compared to the hundreds of dollars a day that we spend on detention. And then the other side of that spectrum is the belief that migrants, you know, should be detained until it's proved that their case is legitimate, you know, and then there's a lot of ideas in between and figuring out what the system is going to be is what we're going to be watching for with Biden. And, you know, one thing I like to just continue to remind people is that it's going to be a little chaotic and messy, even if it's done well, in my opinion, because we're dealing with a backlog, we're dealing with a system that's getting turned back online, et cetera. So I think we should all anticipate and expect some, you know, a little bit of comp complexity um, in May as this gets turned back online and not panic because it, the, the media is going to suggest that we've got just, you know, sort of chaos and a border surge and et cetera, et cetera. They, the, those are headline grabbers. And it's, I think it's important to, to recognize that we got to get through this period of reckoning and get back to an orderly system that we once had. I want to go back. Could you give us the audience a sense of what I don't know if camps is the right word or the the uh, what the right word for where these people who have been turned away or been sent back They're They're in these communities. And, and what are they like? And what are the what are the conditions? They are not like refugee camps in the sense that we think of them that are UNHCR refugee camps supported by the Red Cross, where people have the support that they need in terms of medical care and food and shelter and clothing and schooling for the children, et cetera. These migrant camps in Mexico are just makeshift spots where homeless migrants gather and they, their, their shelters are made out of grocery bags. You know, I mean, it's just, it's, it really blows your mind when you see it. And there is a lot of volunteer support in these migrant camps because there's a lot of good people who care, but it's all just volunteers. Like there may be this one nice group of, of people who brings lunch, you know, on Saturdays and this other medical provider that brings their truck, you know, once a week. So there's like a hodgepodge of support and services here and there, but in no way is it a safe you know, or even acceptable place for anyone to live, but a particularly children. I mean, I remember, uh, I mean, the kids, you see the kids in these camps and it's shocking. And I remember talking to a guy who was holding a brand new teeny little baby. Um, and she was two months old and she had been born in the camp. Mm. His, his wife had gone into labor and, you know, couldn't get medical care. They couldn't get, there was no hospital for them to go to and get services. So that baby was born right there in the camp. It's, I mean, it's pretty sad, uh, rough to see that stuff. Lindsay, what's been your experience? Yeah, and I think it also really depends on the port of entry. I mean, Kate and I both visited the camp in Matamoros, Mexico, which, you know, on the whole actually had maybe more of an infrastructure, at least a certain point more of an infrastructure that actually had for a while, like a designated place where there was the camp, like a camp is an appropriate word to use. Whereas like in um, Nuevo Laredo on the other side of the Laredo port, it's even less safe. And so there's just less 
infrastructure there and less volunteers to handle it. In Tijuana, where I've also been, you know, there's a bit more of an infrastructure there. It just really depends as well. But as Kate said, you know, none of these places are a appropriate or safe for long-term living. I mean, there's lack of access to pretty much everything that someone would need to live a stable life. Is the U.S. federal government, do they provide resources to the folks in these camps? No, absolutely not. You know, and I will just say, I think think all of us have a part to play in this because I think what happens, so what continually frustrates me is the way that people talk about this issue, even in like mainstream media, mainstream conversations, as if any kind of pro-asylum return to where we were is a bad idea or dangerous or risky, et cetera. Um, It is, we had a functioning system for, for decades. It is what this government, this country, first of all, were founded on, you know, as refugees. Then we made a serious commitment to supporting people fleeing persecution post-World War II. And we've stuck to that and we've done it, you know, for over 70 years. It's who we are. And so I think as we think and talk about these issues, we need to remember that, you know, each of us, I think, can have our own little impact in the ways that we speak about this, the way we talk about it online. Of course, we should all be encouraging our legislators to actually, you know, do something on immigration policy, but it's the language around this stuff that I think can be so harmful. The thing that I want to make sure that I understand is when we return, quote unquote, back to, to pre-Title 42, we're still doing the screening, and right? That, that's the idea. There still will be people who are going to reject and say, sorry, that's not, that's not good enough or that doesn't qualify. Um, so that's really what advocates are trying to get to, the process where we're going to screen the individuals Uh, and determine whether or not they uh, will get lawful entry. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an important note. And another big flag is that the Biden administration has also issued a notice of proposed rulemaking on something that we refer to as the asylum ban or the transit ban that essentially says, and this was a rule that the previous administration attempted to put in place during that era that was struck down in the courts. But it is a rule that basically says that if you traveled through another country on your way to the United States to seek asylum and you did not apply for asylum and were denied asylum in that country, then you are banned from seeking asylum in the United States, which essentially would ban every single migrant at the southern border with the exception of Mexicans. If I'm understanding this correctly, if I'm an asylum seeker and I'm passing through another country before I get to the United States, then I'm banned from seeking asylum because the idea is I should have sought asylum in in one of those countries I passed through? That's right. And just to give you an idea, Cubans often first go from Cuba to Colombia and similar with Venezuelans, they go to Colombia first. The reach of their governments of both of those countries' governments into Colombia is vast. And so their ability to seek safety in Colombia is very minimal, and they need to generally pass through quite quickly. They're, in fact, running from persecution from the government. Another interesting stat is that several years ago, when the U.S. government was trying to negotiate with different other countries' governments about the processing of asylum seekers, we discovered that in the entire country of El Salvador, I believe there were four asylum officers in the whole country. If you're thinking about 
you know, processing thousands and thousands of people and their requirement to seek asylum there. It's just kind of laughable in in like a very cringy kind of way. It'll be interesting to see what happens with this notice of proposed rulemaking. Are there any other proposed rules or policies that are coming down the line? The Biden administration also instituted a number of parole programs um, that were modeled off of Uniting for Ukraine, which was a quick parole. I mean, hypothetically, it started out as a quick parole program for Ukrainians and expanded it to Venezuelans, Cubans, Haitians, uh, and Nicaraguans. And the argument by the Biden administration is that those you know, they can have the asylum transit ban because people can then go apply for parole um, in their home countries. But really, in that case, you're talking about, you know, apples and oranges because the the populations that are seeking parole under the new programs are largely different than the populations that find themselves fleeing persecution in the middle of the night and ending up at the southern border. Just to kind of go back to Title 42 for a second, the, the announcement is that Title 42 will be done away with sometime in May. We're now in March. In the meantime, you still have people that are showing up every day, people who have been turned away, and then people who are living in these camps for another, at least another month or two. Is there any other way that a, that a person who is fleeing persecution under normal asylum could try to get legal entry into the United States? Are there other programs they might try or anything like that? Or does Title 42 cut that off as well? Not generally. You know, there's some parole program for for Ukrainians, uh, for people from Afghanistan, you know, sort of spot stuff here and there. But generally someone fleeing persecution in their country and wanting to come here, they either need to be processed as a refugee, which is almost impossible for most of the people who are coming to the southern border because there are no refugee camps um, near them, or they need to get themselves to the border to seek asylum. And that's what the law says. The law that was written by Congress in 1980 mm-hmm. says that anyone who is at the border or inside the country, regardless of how they got here, can apply for asylum. And so that's it. That's what we got. And so Title 42 needs to go so we can get back to that and, and you know, enter into this orderly screening process that we can figure out. This is the United States of America. We can do it. <laughs> right, right. Wow, this has been a very illuminating discussion. I, I want to I start with you, Lindsay. If there is one thing you'd want your audience to, to know about Title 42 and the situation, what would it be? I think the most important thing is one that Kate mentioned earlier, and that's to have educated and well-informed discussions with people in your lives about these issues. Because as she mentioned, we are a nation of immigrants that were built by refugees And immigrants and refugees enrich our lives as individuals and enrich our lives as a nation. And so I often get asked the question is like, what's going to what's going to make the difference? What's the answer? And of course, I can sit here and give you proposed policy changes all day long. But really, the answer is talk to each other and talk to our children. Right. Because may my children be better than me and may my children's children be better than them. And may we come to a place of understanding and knowing and and appreciating each other and our brothers and sisters to the south and to the north and to the east and to the west of us. Mm. Kate, your thoughts? I mean, in that vein, I think it's really important for everybody to remember 
that this country needs immigrants more than it ever has before. You know, we are truly in a time of need with our baby boomers are aging. One statistic I can share is that next year in 2024, for the very first time in American history, we are going to have more people over the age of 65 than under the age of 15. The amount of people who are paying into the social security system, available to work, available to care for the elderly, is dropping and dwindling. And the only way this country is actually going to survive is through immigration. Um, And we have uh, awesome immigrants who want to come here. That's something that some of these Asian countries that are experiencing the same problems don't have. This is actually a benefit that we have available to us. And we need immigrants on all you know, levels of the skill column, right? right? Our immigration system recognizes super high skilled, you know, magnificent, impressive immigrants who have done awesome things. Uh, but we, the truth is we need immigrants who are low skilled, are medium skilled, education, not education, all of that we need. So keeping that at the forefront of our minds as we contemplate all of the policies that we encounter, including asylum along the southern border, I think it's just really critical because there's a knee-jerk reaction from a lot of people, I think, to get scared. You know, the stories about trafficking, all that stuff. It's just, first of all, it's not true. These are the people who are fleeing that kind of violence. Um, but also keeping in mind that the kinds of people who get themselves out of a out of a dangerous situation, out of their country, they get themselves all the way to the southern border and manage to survive living in a makeshift refugee camp for a couple of months because they so desperately want to live in this country. Like these are the kinds of people that we actually do really want here and need here. So let's remember that as we make policy. Well put, well put. Lindsay, Kate, thank you so much again for educating us. And I appreciate you giving us your, uh, your time for the podcast. Of course. Thanks for having us. Take care. And now it's time for some coming announcements. The ILS International Human Rights Committee is now accepting submissions from law students for its annual Human Rights Essay Contest. The deadline to receive essays is on or before April 1st, 2023. The first place award is a $1,500 cash scholarship. For more information or to submit your submission, please send them to admin at ilstexas.org. The email should have the subject header State Bar of Texas International Law Section Writing Contest and contain the contact information for the author. The State Bar of Texas International Law Section and the Dallas Bar Association International Law Section invite you to join us at the 32nd Annual International Law Institute on April 19th and 20th at the SMU campus in Dallas, Texas. A social mixer will kick off day one of the Institute on Wednesday, April 19th at the SMU Dead Men School of Law Karcher Auditorium in Story Hall starting at 6 p.m. It'll be a live DJ, cash bar, and free parking. The next day on Thursday, April 20th, join us for a full day of panels as we convene international law experts to discuss the latest topics affecting Texas lawyers. And our keynote speaker will be the Honorable Kay Bailey Hutchinson. Earn up to 6.5 hours of CLE credit, including one hour of ethics. The link to register is in the show notes. The views presented by the host, 
and the guests on the ILS podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the International Law Section or the State Bar of Texas. This podcast is not intended as legal advice and is only for educational purposes. This has been the ILS podcast, Music, Wonder, Take Two by Admiral Bob, copyright 2020, licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license, available at http colon backslash backslash dig.ccmixter.org backslash files backslash Admiral Bob 77 backslash 62202 ft colon sacjoe 22.